seated, seniors. It's good to be with y'all this morning. And it is UMW Sunday. And before I start, I wanted to point out that they also let me pick the hymns for today. And I picked hymns that were all offered by women as well. So on UMW Sundays, when we have a women's focus day, we very often expect a sermon about women. And in fact, I asked Eileen, she says, what do you want me to preach on? And she said, women. I'm like, well, that's helpful. Thank you. But a lot of time the sermon focuses around whether women can or cannot be pastors or what their role should or should not be within the church. And I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do it for three reasons. The first reason is that there are books upon books upon books who have been written about that. They will parse each and every one of those scriptures for you, following from the original language to the obvious applications that were already happening right there in scripture. And they'll mention the Apostle Junia in Romans, the first clergy couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They'll talk about Phoebe and Eudocia and Cynthia and Tryphena and Tryphosi and Persis. Ministers all mentioned right there in Holy Scripture. The second reason I'm not going to do it is because the United Methodist Church, of which we're a part, settled this a long time ago. Now, I'm no longer a spring chicken, but 13 years before I was even born, In 1956, the United Methodist Church gave full ordination rights to women. And that was following the example even of our own John Wesley, who originally opposed women preaching. But when he saw the Holy Spirit using them to bring people into God's love, changed his opinion on that. So I'm not going to rehash those sermons. And the third reason I'm not going to do it is because I have a very high view of Scripture. I believe that what is captured in the Bible for us is important, and it becomes our guidelines for living. And when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and declared to the crowd gathered there that Joel 2.28 was happening, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and your sons and your daughters would prophesy was what was happening, that he was telling the truth. And I believe that when Paul in Galatians 3.28 wrote those words, for there is now neither Jew nor Greek, not male nor female, not slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ, that Paul was inspired to write that and he was telling the truth. I do, however, today want to look at women. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has entrusted to his church is about more than just making a decision about our eternity, about life after this life. It's also about how we live life here, about how we are the kingdom of God in the world today, and I think it's appropriate at least once a year to stop and take a checkup on some of the ways we're doing that, particularly about women. Now, some of you who are worshiping with us today are gentlemen, and I, this would be a great time for you to say, okay, well, I can tune out. I can start making my list of what i got to get done this afternoon. Please don't do that, because I believe that what the holy and living God says to one of us, he says to all of us. And when he says, you are worthy and you are valued and you are my child, that he says that to all of us. And we are all part of bringing into reality what God has called us to be as this vehicle called the church. I chose today to go at this from the direction of the measure of a woman. Women are always being measured. We're always being judged. We learn it very early on. And there's something very human about looking around us and comparing ourselves to what we see there. 
in my mind's eye, I have this picture of a caveman who looks over at some point and decides that they've got a larger share of the mastodon meat from the hunt this morning than we did. Or a woman preparing dinner in her pot looks over in the cave next door and says, well, their pot's bigger than our pot. That's not fair. How come we don't deserve a pot that size? We constantly measure and judge. And sadly, for many of us women, no matter what we see, we never measure up. I googled the phrase, the worth of a woman, um, and immediately got articles that popped up that said things like, society continues to value mothers over women who do not have children. Don't judge a woman by her clothes. And beautiful women are more successful. After I got through gnashing my teeth and could go back to writing on the sermon, I got to thinking that the clothing, the cosmetics, and the diet industries are all largely fueled by the way women measure their own self-worth in comparison to others and do so largely by their appearance. Even in the business world, business still values women who are more like men. I had a leader in our denomination say to me once, by way of trying to pay me a compliment, that, well, you're just pretty much a man. I'm a girly girl, shoes and lipstick, and I'm a girly girl. And he went on to say that what he was trying to say was that I wasn't as emotionally reactive, I wasn't as gossipy, I wasn't as grudge-holding as he found real women to be. And this was the point in which I just suggested he might just stop talking, just stop talking. Last Thursday at lunch, another woman shared with me a very similar experience in a leadership team, also in our church, she was being introduced to our new district superintendent. And the person introducing him said, you're going to love Nisa, she's, she's like a man. The fact that we still judge women by how much or less they're like men is a comparison that diminishes how God actually created each woman to be. The idea that we have to measure ourselves in some way other than what God says about us. Women are still very much judged by how they look. If you wear too much makeup, if you wear pretty figure accentuating clothes, you get your nails done, well, you're high maintenance. If you don't, if you don't wear makeup, if you don't like skirts, if you let some of your gray hair show and you refuse to obsess about your weight and your figure, someone just might call you butch. Too much softball is not feminine. Things like welding, that's a man's world. Child rearing is a woman's world. By the way, a woman who takes care of her children all day is called a mother. A man who does it is told, said to be babysitting. My dear brothers, you can't babysit your children. Lawn mowing is for men and dishwashing is for women. And I believe the very worst thing that the world says to us these days is that society says, you can have it all. Well, yes, she may be able to have it all, a career, a family, a good-looking fit body and some hobbies, but she probably isn't going to be able to have it all in equal measure all the time. And if she does and tries, she's going to be exhausted. Women still do. 70% of the child rearing 
81% of the housework, 65% of the cooking, 85% of the laundry. A woman spends on average 17 hours a week on household chores compared to the six for a man. Even though women, 55% of us are also employed full time. Less than 12% of American homes, according to a 2016 study, said that the division of labor comes anywhere close to being equitable. And only 36% of households would ever consider a relocation based on the woman's career. That, of course, is concerning to me, working in a field where we get sent by a bishop. It seems that relationships don't adjust for changing roles of women. We simply add those responsibilities to the list we already had. I was once reprimanded at a church that I served after here when I said that my husband does most of the cooking for us. She said, honey, you shouldn't let people know that you don't cook for your man. Bless his heart. That just stripped him of his manhood. Well, if y'all know my husband, Joseph, you know his manhood is just fine. He likes to cook. He enjoys putting spices and stuff together. He finds it relaxing. Why in the world would I not let him do what he likes as much as he wants? There are other things that he wouldn't like quite as much that I do. I believe we live in a tough age. It's tough being a young person coming of age. It's tough being a child. I believe it is tough being a man in the world today, but it is also still tough to be a woman. Even though these matters have been settled in the course of church history and policy, we aren't yet fully living into them. And I believe that the churches should be on the leading edge of this issue and not on the trailing ones. Well, at least the Methodist churches should. Because Methodists have a rich history of being on the leading edge of issues. Things like child labor, women's right to vote, abolishing slavery, addressing substance abuse, creating equal educational opportunities for children, caring for the sick, showing compassion to the poor, even prison reform. Methodists and Methodist women have been on the forefront of those issues. And we need to stay on the forefront of this one. Because when women are who they're created to be, when we live fully into our gifts and graces, it doesn't diminish anyone else. It takes nothing away from a man for a woman to be who she is and who she's called to be. Because we're complementary. I don't mean complementary in the term of flattery. I mean as in we complement one another like pieces of a whole that come together and are greater than the sum of their parts. The church of Jesus Christ, this vehicle that he entrusted the message of the gospel to, only becomes all that it can be, all that it needs to be, all that the world needs it to be, when each and every part of it, daughters and sons, are fully who they are called to be. Sons and daughters are important to God. And the world needs us. So that's why I chose my unusual scripture text this morning. I got pushback both from Eileen and from Carmen in the early service about having to pronounce all those names. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't realize they were going to read them when I chose that text. And I said, just make up a pronunciation and go with it. If you're confident, nobody will know the difference. But I chose it because there are five women 
mentioned in that genealogy. There had to be a woman at each and every point in those generations, but five of them get called by name or almost by name, and I don't believe that's an accident. I believe each and everything captured for us in the canon of Scripture is on purpose. So I have to stop and say, why did the Holy Spirit inspire the gospel author Matthew to use these five women in the genealogy? I'd like to take a look at them just really quickly. The first one is Tamar. She's not terribly well known to us. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, as in tribe of Judah. She married his oldest son, Ur. Well, Ur passed away prematurely without giving her any children. So the law required that his brother, Onan, marry her. That's not quite as creepy as it sounds by modern standards. You see, a woman's place was secured by her children. The man of the household distributed things like tents and food and goods and supplies based on how many children each of his wives were taking care of. A woman with no children received very little, and she also had no long-term security, for it was her children who would take care of her in older age. If she were widowed, if they were older, it was the children, and usually the oldest child, who provided that. This was pre-Social Security, pre-IRA plans, pre-investment for retirement. So it left her very vulnerable. So she marries the brother Onan, And Onan was not willing to give her a child because her firstborn child would have been considered Ur's son and would have inherited what his father would have inherited. Well, Onan stands to gain because with the oldest son dead, with no um, heirs, he is the oldest. He inherits the most. So he doesn't give her a child. Now, I'm going to point out, because we're in polite company, that he didn't do this by not sleeping with her. He simply did it by preventing her conceiving. If you need some more details on that, you'll have to see me afterwards. However, Onan dies prematurely as well, and before she has a child. Now Judah decides that Tamar is cursed. You killing my sons is too quick a rape here. I'm not giving you another one. So she says, you have to wait until this one grows up. Well, when he grew up, He wouldn't marry her to Tamar. So Tamar becomes desperate, and she pretends to be a prostitute, and she seduces Judah. And you know what? The man didn't even have payment with him. He promises her a goat as payment, and he leaves his cloak, his staff, and a ring behind as surety for the payment, but he doesn't pay her the goat either. Well, Tamar gets pregnant, and when she reaches the point that she can no longer hide her pregnancy, The society brings her before the company, before the group of elders to be judged and to be stoned for being an immoral woman. And as she stands there, she says, now wait just a minute. (laughs) The judge up there happens to be the father of this child. And here's the staff and the cloak and the ring to prove it. To his credit, Judah does repent and say he has done her wrong and tried to do better. But Tamar is a victim of the societal structure into which she was born. She had few economic options. She couldn't just go out and get a job. Women got married and they had children. She did the best she could in the circumstances that she found herself. 
And she resorts to things that we find distasteful because she felt she had no option. And I do need to point out that they were going to stone her, but there's no conversation about stoning the man. And unfortunately, this too still exists in our society. A woman who sleeps around, forgive me, is often called a slut. But a man who does so is a Romeo, a Don Juan, a Casanova. Occasionally, we'll call him a womanizer. And just as a side note, um, don't Google what to call a promiscuous man or woman. You will not want to see those results. But here in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who came to redeem us, to give us life more abundantly and free, is this woman, Tamar, who does the best she can in the situation she finds herself. The next one is Rahab the prostitute. She's a little better known to us. As the Hebrew spies explore Jericho to try to take it, she hides them from the authorities of her culture. She sides with them and she helps them take the city of Jericho. And she and her family were preserved by hanging a red cord out the window of their house. I'm told that the origin of red light districts comes from that red cord hanging out the window. And later in Hebrews chapter 11, Rahab is held up to us as a paragon of virtue, wisdom, and hospitality. Now, I don't know why Rahab was a prostitute. Was she widowed? Did she have the care of children? Did she have the care of elderly parents? Why she didn't marry again, we don't know. But we do know she was not alone. She had family. And it appears that out of few choices and desperation, she too chose a path so she could do what she needed to do to provide for her family. The third woman is a woman, a woman named Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. Back in the Old Testament, the Moabites opposed the Israelite invasion of Canaan, the promised land. And for that, they are prevented from being in the assembly of God's people. It says for ten generations. Now the rabbis interpreted that to mean pretty much forever. The idea was you would lose count before you got to ten generations. Even the Israelites who had enslaved them for 400 years were only forbidden for three generations. If you married a Moabite, if you gave your child to be married to a Moabite, your Moabite grandchildren were forbidden to be part of the congregation of the nation of Israel forever. And yet here is Ruth who loved her mother-in-law Naomi, who, by the way, married a Moabite, so much so that she goes back home to Israel with her. And she says, we often hear these words given to people who are in love. They say them to one another, but it is given from a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. I will go where you go. I will lodge where you lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And she meets a man named Boaz, and he loves her, and he marries her, and here she ends up in the genealogy of the Messiah. The fourth woman is called the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba, and Bathsheba's presence there, I believe they use her husband's name, 
because it is a reminder to us that she is the woman who had an affair with the king and then stood by while he had her husband killed in hopes of covering up the fact that she was pregnant with the other man's child. This adulterous woman, who should have been stoned according to Mosaic law, becomes the wife of King David, the greatest king of Israel, becomes mother of King Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived. And yet I look at Bathsheba and I wonder, where did she find herself? Because if you remember, David was on his rooftop looking out over his city instead of being at war with his soldiers where he was supposed to be. And he sees her taking a bath at her house. And he says to his servants, go get her for me. It doesn't sound so much like he wooed her as he ordered her like a side of fries. She too was a woman caught in power. And she did what she had to do. The fifth woman is Mary, Jesus' mother. A young woman who is described as righteous and devout, probably young, who because of her faithfulness, literally becomes the mother of God. At least four of these five women are scandalous. They have to try to twist their circumstances to meet their own needs. They are survivors scattered across the ages and the years, just like women are today. They took what was dealt them and they continued to live. Yet I believe there always would have been people who would have scorned them who would have been unwilling to let them become who God had drawn them into being. I can hear them talking about Rahab, that old prostitute. A tiger doesn't change its stripes. I don't know who she thinks she is, but acting like she's not trash. I can hear the other women talking about Ruth, who would have been different because she was Moabite. That old cuzzy Moabite. I wouldn't have her in my house. She's not hanging out with us. She's not walking to get water with me. She might be fooling Boaz, but I know how Moabites are. Well, didn't she certainly marry us? Same thing could be said about Bathsheba. Well, my, 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 how things changed. She traded her soldier for a king. Not all of us have that particular set of skills. And Mary... You know, Mary, that her community wasn't sure about her story. Young girl comes up pregnant, claims immaculate conception. And yet she faced that storm, kept walking forward, believing that God had good things for her. Each of these women trusted that their God loved them despite the circumstances surrounding them. And I believe that when we believe that God loves us, we are more fully fully who God has called us to be. And when we claim to be disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, we want to see others become fully who God has called them to be. I don't believe we can claim to love one another and say, you can't do what God has called you to do. You can't be who God has called. That particular gift is not an acceptable one. We must trust one another, live fully into who we are. I see reinforcement here in this genealogy. 
of what God has said in other places, that God measures the worth of a person, including his daughters. The measure of a woman comes not as the world measures, but as Samuel captured in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the things the world looks at. The world looks at outward appearances. The Lord looks at the heart. God looks at his sons and his daughters and he measures us worthy and valuable, worth coming to redeem, worth drawing into relationship, worth empowering through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I leave you with some of my favorite words from Isaiah chapter 43, what God says to God's people. I'm reading it from the message because I just love the way it says it. God says, don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And that's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. I'd trade all of creation just for you. You are my hand-picked servant so that you'll come to know me and trust me and understand who I am. May we hear God say that to us today. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks and praise. We thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have made each of us in your image, and we are as diverse and wonderful as the rest of your creation. We have different colors of hair and eyes, different personalities, different things we're interested in and things that we are good at, and yet together we become part of a beautiful tapestry that is the world you have created and the world that you love. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit that each and every one of us might discover who we are in you and we might live in fear. As we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We're going to stand and sing our closing hymn, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. I remind you that this all